The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Mark 6, 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist was raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers were at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I have beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, as you can uh, see this morning, we have a very interesting text ahead of us. If you're visiting Delta Church, welcome. You picked the Sunday uh, where we're going to be talking about someone who gets beheaded um, right before we're leading into Easter. But what we're going to see this morning in this um, account of the death of John the Baptist is a picture of a faithful witness. Um, And I'm arguing that it's going to lead us to see ultimately um, the more... Uh, bigger picture of the ultimate faithful witness, Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to hit pause. We're going to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to come and to, to soften our heart and to turn on our ears so that we can hear the word of God this morning that will turn our attention to our text. Why don't you guys join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we believe in your ability to demonstrate the very power of God so that faith this morning may not rest in words merely spoken by me, a man, but so that faith might come to rest in Jesus Christ who is the image of God. 
Father, I need you to turn on our lazy ears, and I need you, Holy Spirit, to soften our hearts so that way we could see Jesus Christ in the text. It's in your name and in your power we pray this morning. Amen. On March 2nd, 2011, Shabez Bahati, age 42, and the only Christian serving in Pakistan's cabinet, was brutally murdered when gunmen sprayed his body with bullets. Al-Qaeda claimed responsibility for the attack, saying the attack was a, quote, fitting lesson for the world of infidelity, that this is the fitting end of the accursed one which will serve as an example for others. Shabez Bahati knew the risk he was taking as a devoted follower of King Jesus. Just a few months before his martyrdom, he said this, I want to share that I believe in Jesus Christ, who has given his own life for us. I know what is the meaning of the cross. And I'm ready to die for a cause. I'm living for my community and suffering people, and I will die to defend their rights. And on that day in March of 2011, Shabez Bahati did just that. Now, it was just last week that we said that to be a follower of King Jesus means you're going to face hunger in this life and you're going to face hostility. There will be times when you're walking out your life, living as a a disciple, a follower of Jesus on the King's mission that you will go about witnessing Christ and you will find at times spiritual hunger. But there's also times when you will find hostility. That when you seek to advance the king's mission in this world, the reality is we will face hostile rejection for speaking and preaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is a Savior who saves sinners. And in order to drive this point home, the reality that we will face hostility in this world as followers of Jesus Christ, Mark turns our attention this morning to the death of John the Baptist. Now at first read, whenever you read this account, when you just zoom in on verses 14 through 29, admittedly, this whole account just feels out of place. I mean, as you're just trucking through the verses in Mark chapter 6, you start reading about how Jesus goes back to his hometown and he's rejected in the town of Nazareth, verses 1 through 6. And then Mark turns our attention to the commissioning and the sending of the twelve, the apostles, verses 7 through 13. And what happens is Jesus sends these men out. He sends them out with authority. He sends them out so that they can go and begin to proclaim the good news that God and man who are separated by sin can be reconciled. But notice that instead of jumping right to the report of the return, Mark interrupts the sending of the twelve and the subsequent return of the twelve with this account of John the Baptist and his death. And so what it does, it just makes us ask the question, like, why does he do this? Like, why is verse 30 not verse 14? 
How come it's not Jesus sends the twelve, they go out with authority, they're teaching with authority, they're healing with authority, they're casting out demons with authority, and then the guys return and give Jesus a report? Why does Mark feel obligated to go, we need to separate the sending and the return with this account of the John the Baptist's death? And I think the answer, again, comes down to this, that Mark does this in order to arrest our attention and to force us to deal with the realities of what it means to be a faithful witness for King Jesus. Mark wants you to see this morning that to walk as a faithful witness who advances the king's mission, it will at times come with great cost. See, it's true that at times faithful witness, it's going to look like success. And that's exactly what you see with the twelve, with the sending and the return of the twelve. Jesus sends them out. They go out with positive signs and wonders accompanying their faithful witness. You've got people repenting, people believing. There's this whole vibe of triumphant victory. There's these mighty works of power being done through them because the Christ has given them His authority. We look at this and go, man, look at how much success is accompanying what they're doing as being faithful witnesses. So we say, this is exactly what faithful witnessing is supposed to look like. It looks like this. This is what success is. But in thinking in this way alone, we run the risk of assuming that faithful witness can never look like failure. Because after all, if something doesn't look like success or feel like success, if we find hostility instead of hunger as a result of being a faithful witness, then surely this is a sign that we have failed, or at least that's what we're prone to think. So in order to grow us in our understanding of these things, it's almost as Mark says, listen, man, We've been seeing a lot of triumphant victory, a lot of miraculous works of power, Mark chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. And so it's almost like Mark says, as we send out the 12, and before I bring them back around in verse 30, we need to hit pause in order to correct maybe a, a, a potential way of thinking that might throw us off course, that if we go out as faithful witnesses for the king, we will never, ever, ever find hostility. And he says, that's just simply not the case. And I want you to see this to be true. And I'm going to show you a picture of the faithful witness that we see in John the Baptist. And so that's what Mark calls us to come and observe. A picture of faithful witness as he forces us to deal with the account of John's death. And so as we round the corner into verse 14, starting off with our First verse here in our text for this morning, John just basically gives us the setup. He's going to give us some setup details in order to get us into the place where we can learn why John the Baptist was beheaded and the response that happened from people that are around him. And so Mark begins in verse 14. You can see this in your copy of Scripture. He says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. See, sooner or later, it was bound to happen that the works of Jesus were going to begin to make their way beyond the region of Galilee. And in verse 14, we find that the disciples' question found all the way back at the end of chapter 4. So remember when Jesus calms the storm and it prompts them to look at Jesus and ask, who then is this that the wind and the waves will be, obey him? 
Who then is this? Who is this one who wields this kind of power over creation? And now this question of who then is this has made its way into the upper ranks of the highest circles. The topic of conversation of who then is this, it's not the poor man's question anymore. It's now up into the upper ranks of the aristocracy of the day. And as the ministry of Jesus continues to expand, and with the sending out of the twelve, people are beginning to talk about this Jesus guy. And they're also beginning to draw their own conclusions as to who he is. Some, after hearing the things of Jesus, begin to conclude that Jesus is able to perform his miraculous works of power because he's actually John the Baptist raised from the dead, some say. Others hear that and they're like, man, that's just not true, man. This has got to be Elijah. Well, others are just merely satisfied to say, man, like, okay, maybe Elijah, maybe not. I think he's just a prophet, like one of the prophets, the prophets of old. But Mark tells us in verse 16 that Herod is convinced otherwise. Hearing of Jesus and his power and his faithful witness concerning the good news of God In verse 16, Mark tells us that Herod says, No, man, when I hear Jesus, this has got to be John. The one whom I beheaded has been raised. Now, hearing Herod say this in verse 16 concerning John the Baptist, it sparks the question, so like, what exactly has John the Baptist been up to? I mean, after all, the last time we heard of John the Baptist was all the way back in chapter 1. Like the first handful of verses, John the Baptist pops up on the radar. As we roll into verse 14, he disappears, and the next time we see him, he's dead here in Mark chapter 6. And so way back in Mark chapter 1, we learn that he is the one out in the wilderness preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Mark tells us that he is the forerunner sent to prepare the way of the Lord. But now in chapter 6, he's languishing in a prison beheaded. And so it prompts the question, what on earth happened? And maybe perhaps more importantly, why had Herod put him to death? And Mark tells us the reason why Herod put John to death is because John had consistently and fearlessly been preaching his message of repentance to the great and the lowly, including Herod the king. So when John disappears off the radar of this gospel back in Mark chapter 1, and Jesus is going around and and calling disciples to himself, he's teaching with authority, preaching with authority, healing with authority, casting out demons with authority, John the Baptist is in the background doing what he does best. Preaching, you need to repent and you need to follow this guy. You need to repent and you need to follow this guy. You're in opposition to the law of God. The way that you're going to be restored to a right relationship with God is by following the Christ. This has been going on in the background. The other gospels corroborate this. And apparently, this even brought John to the place where he was not just willing to do it to the poor folk who made their way out to the River Jordan, but he was even willing to go into the upper ranks of the highest society and call people to repent and to believe in the one sent by God. And what we see is that because he had consistently and fearlessly been doing this, it was going to cost him dearly. And so by way of flashback, Mark begins to illustrate a picture of what faithful witness looks like through the life and the death of John. So when you look in verses 17 through 20, the first thing we can learn about 
being a faithful witness is this, that as a faithful witness, you must take sin seriously. Verses 17 through 20, that as a faithful witness, you must take sin seriously. Verse 17, Mark tells us that it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he, Herod, had married her, Herodias. And so what we learn is that Herod had married his sister-in-law, his brother Philip's wife. But not only that, Herodias, as the name suggests, belonged to the same family as Herod. And history tells us that Herodias was also actually Herod's niece. And so in other words, to read verse 17 is to discover that Herod's marriage to Herodias was an incestuous, adulterous marriage. And right in the thick of this incestuous, adulterous marriage stands John the Baptist, the preacher of repentance. A faithful witness whose preaching gets him into trouble. Mark tells us that John had been saying to Herod this, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. That's the summary of John's message of repentance to Herod. And it's this preaching which kicks up a dust storm of emotion between Herod and his wife. Herodias, verse 19, bears a grudge against John and wants to put him to death. But she can't because, verse 20, Herod fears John, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. Herod is a man torn right now. He hears John, he's greatly perplexed by the things he hears while he's simultaneously glad to hear him. So it's just this picture of raging emotion as he's tossed and torn between, man, I think this guy's right in what he's saying, but like I don't want to be like too excited about religious stuff, but my wife doesn't really like him, I want to honor her, and so he's just this man torn. And right here swirling in sort of this hurricane of emotion and call to repentance and preaching stands John the Baptist a faithful witness. And so we find that John is in an obvious sticky spot because of his commitment to take sin seriously. See, John knew his Bible. He knew, according to Leviticus 18, that it was contrary to the law of Moses for a man to marry his brother's wife. He knew that it was contrary, according to Leviticus 18 as well, It's contrary to the law of Moses for an aunt to marry her nephew and vice versa. Because he knows his Bible, John fully understands that the whole foundation of Herod's marriage exists in opposition to God's word and God's ways. In marrying Herodias, Herod had sinned, and because sin is serious, Herod must repent. That was the driving motivation for John saying what he was saying. And marrying Herodias, Herod had sinned, and because sin is serious, Herod must repent. And notice that John doesn't satisfy himself to speak privately about the matter behind Herod's back. Instead, he has the courage to actually go to him and to speak openly and plainly concerning his sin. Now, in studying these verses this past week, especially verses 17 through 20, verse 18 just laid hold of me and it would not let go. The singular verse which said, John had been saying to Herod, it was not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This verse, if it could have hands, just laid hold of me. It seized me and it just wouldn't let go. 
Because if you think about it, the only reason John found himself in this position of losing his head in a Palestinian prison was because he felt compelled to go to Herod, the king, one of the elite class of his day, and tell him, you, sir, are living opposed to the law of God. In other words, because John took sin seriously, and because he knew that Herod must repent for the forgiveness of sin, he was compelled to risk the certain repercussions that Herod could bring upon him for calling out his illicit marriage. See, this is what a faithful witness does. Driven by the seriousness of sin, a faithful witness is compelled to cross the pain line. In his book, Honest Evangelism, a man named Rico Tice talks about the recognizable risk of rejection that comes with talking about the need to repent of sin and to believe in Jesus. And it's this potential risk of rejection which Tice calls the pain line. See, we know that hostility is a possibility when we bear witness for Jesus Christ. We know this. All of us have experienced it. You open your mouth and you begin to share the good news that Jesus Christ is the one sent by God to be the Lamb of God who can take away the sins of the world. And the moment that we call someone to repent of sin and place their faith in Christ in this way, we've all experienced hostility as the reward. We know that when the time comes to identify sin and expose the need to repent and call someone to believe in the name of Jesus in order to be saved, this means we will have to open ourselves up to the risk of rejection. And because we don't like that, because we don't like opening ourselves up to that risk of potential hostility, what we often do is we betray the seriousness of sin and we shy away from sharing the gospel because we don't want to risk receiving hostility for bearing witness for Christ. But John the Baptist shows us that the stakes are too high to do this. So if you think about it, John did not have to say anything to Herod. Like, if you think about it, like, I guess he could have just been like, oh, I think someone else will maybe take care of this. Or like, well, you know, like, it is sort of a bummer situation, but maybe, like, he'll just sort of figure out it's really bad, and then the situation will take care of itself. Or maybe he was just like, man, I know my Bible, I know what Leviticus 18, I know what Leviticus 20 say, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to my room, I'm going to commit to pray for him really hard every day, and just simply trust that God will change his heart. And that's good. And that's right, but notice that the example John gives us is even though he might have been saying, this isn't a good thing for Herod, and even though he might have been saying, I'm going to pray for this guy, and even though he knew his Bible, eventually the point came when John had to speak. John had to verbalize the sinfulness of sin to Herod. He had to risk the pain line with this ruler. Now, there's nothing vitriolic about this. This wasn't hate-fueled rage. This wasn't John on a crusade to go around accusing everybody, sin in your life and sin in your life, like somehow he's the sin police and going around. Doing, it was, that's not the picture we get. What we just simply see is this, that when the time came, John the Baptist was presented with the opportunity and knowing that hunger or hostility could be the response to telling Herod, you're 
eternal soul is at risk if you continue down the path of sin, walking in a manner that is apart from God's word and God's ways. It's going to go bad for you. John risks the pain line and exposes sin for the eternal good of Herod. And in this, John stands as a picture of faithful witness and his example calls you and his example calls me to do the same. As a faithful witness, you must take sin seriously. And so it just simply prompts the question, what in your life is preventing you from taking sin seriously? What in your life is preventing you from taking the sin of others seriously? Or perhaps to put another way, what is preventing you from crossing the pain line with that person in your world right now where you know I've built the relationship up as much as it can be built up. I've shared my home with this person as much as I can share my home with this person. I've talked with this person. I've prayed with this person. I've done all these things. Now the point has simply come to where I've got to cross the pain line with this person. I need to go to them and just lay out the simple gospel that God is holy, man is sinful, Jesus saves, will you respond? Like that is just simply the next step for me. But we're unwilling to take that step so often. So the question you've got to deal with is what is preventing you from crossing the pain line? Well, Mark shows us that John most definitely crosses the pain line with Herod. And he most definitely finds hostility. See, I'm convinced that John knew his statement to be received with hostility. To be a first century Jew, you didn't roll around with the Herods and just assume that these were a bunch of good old boys. The Herods were a ruthless, cruel family. And to go before Herod, the Tetrarch, and to tell him that your marriage is illicit according to the Word of God, in the back of your mind, you're assuming this is probably not going to go well for me. And yet, he speaks anyway. Because as a faithful witness, John has simply counted the cost of discipleship. And it's as we continue in our text, rolling into verse 21, this is exactly what Mark brings us to next, that not only as a faithful witness must we take sin seriously, but as a faithful witness, you can expect the cost of discipleship to be great. To live out the king's mission, it's going to come with a price. And this is what we see in verses 21 through 29. And Mark shows us that one result of faithful witness is that some will want to harm you. That's what we see in verses 21 through 26. Mark rounds the corner and he starts to lay out the sordid details that that fill in the background of John's demise. Herod's birthday comes and it presents an opportunity for a banquet. The who's who of the kingdom, they show up in attendance. And no doubt, fueled by drunkenness, the men in attendance turn the occasion into one of lust. When you read that first sentence there in verse 22, for when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. She wasn't performing the waltz in front of them. The shortness of the sentence is covering a multitude of sins. This was full-blown strip tease in front of these, in front of these men. 
And so here's Herodias sending in her daughter to the man that she's married to and says, Honey, will you go and do this before Daddy and all of his friends? And she does it. She comes in and she dances, pleasing Herod and his guests. And in payment, the king looks at his stepdaughter and says, Ask me for whatever you wish and I'm going to give it to you. I'm vowing this. Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. It's an idiom for the day saying, I will not refuse you anything. Ask it and I'll give it. Not knowing what to ask for, the daughter goes to her mother and knowing an opportunity when she sees one, Herodias coaches her daughters in the ways of cruelty and says what you need to do is go back to dad and ask for the head of John the Baptist. And in the moment when the daughter returns to Herod, my guess is that you could hear a pin drop as she makes her request. You said I'm going to get whatever I want. I need you to bring me the head of John the Baptist on a plate. And as one brother put it, Herod was trapped. His men knew it. The daughter knew it. Herodias knew it. Herod knew it. There was only one way of escape. Either Herod must lose face before all these men and break his drunken promise, or he must lose John the Baptist in order to keep his pride and influence intact. And history tells us that Herod took the coward's route. Instead of losing face and saying, guys, I made, I made a pretty stupid promise whenever I was all liquored up, and I, I need to take that back to show you, like, maybe I make some mistakes in life. Pride overran. And he says, I'm just willing to lose John the Baptist, a man that he feared, a man that he knew to be a righteous and holy man, a man that greatly perplexed him, a man that he was glad to hear, a man he was trying to protect from his wife by actually putting him in prison, now meets his demise at the hands of Herod. And taking the coward's route, Herod chooses the latter, showing that as a faithful witness, it is possible to lose your life while faithfully serving the king. See, Mark tells us that immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. And in the end, Herod, filled with the fear and the prospect of displeasing his wife and losing face with man, he just simply brings a swift end to God's faithful witness. Boom, John's gone. Mark's gospel, he shows up twice, proclaiming as the forerunner, as a beheaded man in a prison. Now you're sitting here this morning, you're like, sweet Lord, why did I show up to church today? The Bible is talking about a guy losing his head, literally, in a prison. And no doubt you're asking the question, what on earth does this have to do with me? I mean, it's the question you should ask for most things in life. So what? Like, why should I give a rip about a guy who died 2,000 years ago because he was preaching repentance to some king I don't even know and don't even care about? See, what we need to know is this, is that it most definitely matters for us. Because in all of this, Mark is teaching us something. See, in the end, it's true that we're meant to read this account of John's death, and we are meant to be challenged in our discipleship. That is an implication of the text. 
We're meant to ask the question, does faithful witness in these ways define me? Do I take sin seriously like John took sin seriously? Am I compelled to go to others and risk the pain line for their eternal good? Have I counted the cost of discipleship like John? Am I willing to toe the line and step into the breach for someone else, not just praying for them and not just hoping that someone else will come and share the gospel with them, but am I the one who's willing to go, this person is in my sphere of influence and this person is not unreached for the good news of Jesus Christ because I live in their world. And because I live in their world, God has called me to be a missionary to this person, to be able to witness to them. And that means I'm going to have to risk the potential of hostility or the potentiality of hunger in order to bear the good news, invite this person to come and repent of their sin and place their faith in the Savior that was crucified and resurrected from the grave. And I'm going to call this person to respond by repenting and believing. You read these verses, and these are legit questions to ask ourselves. Do these realities define me? But if we were to stop here, we'd miss the point entirely. See, the Scriptures are all about Jesus Christ, which is why we can also respond to this text in another way as well. See, in the picture of faithful witness that Mark paints for us by turning us to John the Baptist, what Mark is doing is he's preparing us for a picture of the faithful witness, Jesus Christ. He's prepping us for what he's going to tell us a couple of chapters later at the end of his gospel. See, just as John the Baptist was handed over, so Jesus is going to be handed over unto death. Just as John is executed by a reluctant political ruler in Herod, so Jesus is going to be sentenced to death by a reluctant political ruler in Pilate. And just as Herodias seized an opportunity to carry out her evil designs, so Judas Iscariot is going to seek an opportunity to do the same to Jesus." In other words, John the Baptist not only serves as the forerunner of Jesus, which is what we saw back in Mark chapter 1, but he also serves as the foreshadower of the one that we need to die as a faithful witness in the plan of God's salvation for sinners so that we can be made right with God the Father. To look at John the Baptist and go, this is good. I need a faithful witness to die for me, but I need someone who is sinless. I need someone who can do this, but who is the faithful witness who has never sinned, never broken the law of God. And in laying down this pattern of faithful witness unto death, the Baptist points forward to the king. For it was King Jesus and faithfulness to God's plan of salvation who would head to the cross in order to give his life as a ransom for many. So whenever you consider the life and the death of John the Baptist, the prophetic forerunner of the king, Mark is ultimately calling you to come and consider your response to the life and the death of the prophet of God, Jesus Christ. And so the question is, what's your response to this king? What's your response to this king? Are you more in line with Herod? 
greatly perplexed by Jesus. They're glad to hear about Jesus. They're glad to dabble in religious things. They're glad to do the church thing, the Sunday school thing, read a little here, read a little there. Are you greatly perplexed, glad to hear him? You fear him a little bit, but ultimately, Jesus bears no impact on your life. Herod was unwilling to lose face to say, I repent. We're about ready to go to a place where we don't want to go right here by murdering this guy. So I'm going to lose face in the eyes of man in order to do what I know is right. Are you like Herod in this way? Unwilling to lose face? Because like, if you've got to like, do the whole repent and believe in Jesus thing, the guys at work on Monday, this isn't going to go so well. Your family is going to mock and jeer you. You're going to lose face in the eyes of others. And so what you do, like Herod, you're like, man, like, I like hearing them. I'm sort of perplexed. Religious stuff, it's good. I've got a little bit of fear. But ultimately, like, I'm just too scared of man to actually say, Jesus is my king. Jesus is my Lord. I'm trusting in him alone for salvation. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And I'm embracing this entirely with everything that I am. I'm just unwilling to do this because that means I'm going to have to lose face with some folk and I'm not willing to do that is that your response maybe you're more in line with Herodias you bear a grudge because you just don't like the fact that you'd have to admit yourself to be a sinner in need of a savior if you believe this whole Jesus thing or it could be that you just fall more in line with the Baptist happy to see Jesus for who he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, this morning, there's just simply no greater question you could possibly wrestle with other than this. What is your response to this king? Let's pray. Father, we need you to take these words and to pile drive them deep into our soul. So that way we would not walk out of here having had the seeds of the gospel sown onto the soil of our heart only for them to be snatched up by the cares of the world, only for them to be snatched up by the enemy of our soul. We need you, Holy Spirit, to supernaturally loosen up, make receptive the soil of our hearts so that way we could hear these words and let them sink deep down into our soul, wrestling with the question, like it's simple, man, like, I, I need to like, think of these things. What is my response to this king, the faithful witness, the prophet of God? God, I pray that you would do this in my heart, in my mind, and in the hearts of the minds of those who are here this morning. God, help us to consider with seriousness the things of sin. Sin separates us from the eternal God. God, if we're here this morning, we have not turned from sin and turned to Christ in faith, trusting His sacrifice was enough. God, I pray that today would be one more step towards that place, that some would respond this morning by repenting and believing in the Savior. God, for others of us who are scared to risk hostility, I pray that you would empower us with the Holy Spirit to walk as faithful witnesses for you. God, help us to respond in a way that is pleasing. Hear the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart, and would they be pleasing to you, O God, as a result of what we've heard today. 
It's in your name, Lord Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, I pray. Amen.